0: Week two of a series I've entitled The Family Tree, where we're looking at the functionally dysfunctional family of our Savior, where we see that not only do we know Jesus' dad's name, but Jesus' dad's dad's name, and Jesus' dad's 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 times 42 name, we see all of this genealogy, and we're going to dive into that. Today, I encourage you that if, uh, if you're taking notes, open up the bulletin and you can fill in the blanks. Uh, you can open up the Timber Creek app and you can follow along there. We have a digital blanks there. Uh, if you say, ah, oh, I'm taking notes isn't my thing. That's okay. Don't, you don't have to do that. Just write down everything I say and you'll be fine. Uh, I want to start with this thought. Just we're going to jump right in and, and it's this. Everyone loves a good story. No one likes to be bored by a story. Everyone loves a good story. It's what keeps us coming back to the movies. It's what keeps us sitting down. When we're young or we're old, it doesn't matter. Everyone loves a good story. A picture speaks a thousand words. Many times pictures speak stories. Here's a picture that my mom had uh, of of me growing up. This is me in kindergarten. And uh, you can tell that I was on a, the pastor's salary as a kid. This guy's actually got like wrestling outfit and it looks like my mom just wanted to dress me for success. Like she dressed me in my Easter outfit apparently. I don't know why, like, oh, Jesus is risen and so will you against SWC. Uh, I wish there was a good story about this, but no, I got crushed. I just got, I just got crushed by the dude in the uh, headgear. I didn't even have headgear. That may be some of my issues, okay? Everyone loves a good story. This one isn't a good story, but the truth is story is a universal language. You can speak story with your hands and your eyes and slow and quiet and loud and boisterous and, and there's stories that we love of the underdog and the David and Goliath and the Cinderella and we just love stories. And here's what's beautiful about stories. When we're young, we'll ask for a drink of water before bed or when we're in bed just to try and stay up. And how many of you have ever had your kids come in? You you, uh, have come into the room and your kids have said, will you tell me a story? There's just something we're just attracted to stories. Even I've sat not only with my own kids and yelled across the house, you know, suck your thumb, you know, instead of getting a drink of water. Uh, I've told my kids stories. I, myself growing up, on the way to Thanksgiving holidays and Christmas holidays, sitting in the middle of the Ford Aerostar minivan in between, very safe, very safe, in between the two captain's chairs in the front, asking mom and dad to tell me a story about when you were younger. I've sat in hospital rooms and hospital lobbies when loved ones, old and young, are about to or have passed away. And we're not really checking the weather at that time, we're sharing Stories. Stories are powerful. Stories are a universal language. And here's what's beautiful about our God. Our God chose to show himself through his story. God could have chosen a mathematical equation. He could have given us just a list of do's and don'ts of leadership axioms to live by. He could have given us just advice. Could have given us all kinds of things. It could have been just like a, a stamp, a special tattoo that, that all of a sudden, you're either you're born with it or you're not. Instead, he chooses to show himself through an unbelievable story. And that story is really the whole word of God from Genesis to Revelation. What's beautiful about that story is it's 66 books written by 40 plus authors over 1,500 years in three different languages on three different continents. And yet every single one of those authors in that story creates one big story, one thread that is common through it all. When you get, I can't even get my family of four to decide where we're gonna have lunch after church, but to get 40 authors over the course of 1,500 years in different languages to tell the story of God in a succinct way where they're not contradicting one another, it's a beautiful thing. And that's what God has chosen to do through his son. Genesis to Revelation and that is broken down in a couple of different ways, not only the Old Testament, but also the New Testament. But this is really one way to look at the story of God in five acts, act one, act two, act three, and so on. The first act is the garden, and that's where God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates the first two humans himself with dirt and breath and then a rib. And those two humans that God created They just want to take matters into their own hands. We're all addicted to wanting to be God ourselves. It's still an issue in 2022 and will be an issue in 2047. We're addicted to taking control. We're addicted to wanting to be our own gods. And sure enough, they wanted to be our own gods and sin enters the world. Sin is not the act you commit. It's the authority you reject. When I sin, I'm rejecting the authority of God as the final say in my life and because of that we go from act 1 of the perfect garden perfect humans god walking with them in perfect harmony perfect community where we're un we are uh, we are unabridged we are together completely and yet sin separates us and we get into act 2 which is the nation of Israel and god will show us now through the nation of Israel throughout the old testament that he is going to show his protection and his presence and his promises To this nation of Israel and yet through this whole story the nation of Israel they're gonna instead of relying on God to be their king they're gonna want to choose their own kings they want to be like everybody else they are addicted to control and instead of trusting God they take matters into their own hands we go to act four and that's the church and that's where we are We're living in act four of the Bible. The birth of the church is in the book of Acts. We are empowered by the spirit, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is is indwells us at salvation. And there's a promise of an even deeper immersion of his spirit to be bold witnesses for him to this world. And we're living as the body of Christ, the hands and feet, the promise and the presence and the provision of God through his body being empowered by his spirit. Finally, act five is gonna be the new garden where this whole story comes full circle and God is gonna create the new heaven and new earth. He's gonna come again and he's gonna make everything right as it was in the beginning. But in order to get there, he's gotta tell the story. The hinge point, the climax, the piece that holds it all together though is act three and that's what we're entering in, celebrating in this Christmas season and that is... The coming of Jesus. It's the hinge of the door. Everything leans in. The entire story of the garden and the nation of Israel, the church, and the new garden. It all culminates and centers around Jesus. He is the fulfillment and the shadow of all these things. And we don't just celebrate a birth this Christmas. We celebrate a a coming, an arrival that has been long Awaited over century and century and century, arrived and now we celebrate year after year after year. The coming of Jesus is a powerful moment that we don't want to get clouded with just uh, tinsel and presents wrapped under a tree. It's fine to do all those things. Have fun, ho, 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 but let's make sure that we understand the the. The power behind not just a birth of a Virgin Mary, but the coming of the fulfillment of God's story to us. If you're taking notes, you can write a couple of these down. First thing we want to talk about is this. The story of Jesus, this whole story, it doesn't start. The coming of Jesus doesn't start with once upon a time. Have you ever shared a story or read a story or watched a story that started with the words once upon a time? Those are not new words, yet we're still watching stories. We're still engaging those stories. The story of God doesn't start with once upon a time like a fairy tale. As a matter of fact, the four camera angles of Jesus' life are known as the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are like camera angles on the main character of Jesus, the Son of God, and they show us different perspectives of the same life and the gospel, the news of Jesus. And it's not a fairy tale, it's for real. Matthew, the very first book of the New Testament that starts this whole thing off, he doesn't start with once upon a time or a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. He starts with something that doesn't sound very sexy, to be honest. He starts with a historical genealogy. And it's the kind of writing that no publisher would ever approve as the first moments out of the book. No publisher would say, you know what? You ought to spend the first 17 lines just talking about who begat who begat who. Nobody's gonna do that. But yet Matthew specifically does this because his audience is us, but he's also writing to a Jewish audience and the culture of the Jews were looking for the Messiah and where he came from and the line and his bloodline was so massively important. Matthew chapter one starts like this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, which means anointed one. He's the son of David, so he's the anointed one of God. He's the son of David, King David, meaning that he's in the line of royalty. And he's the son of Abraham, which he's a promise that's been given. Abraham was given the promise that through your seed, the whole, all nations and the whole world would be blessed by you. Matthew is showing us he's the anointed one. He's royalty. He is from the seed of Abraham. This guy has a legit, um, he, 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 he has legitimate access to the throne of your life. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. Abraham, um, he had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. And I'm one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Jacob, the father of Judah, and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, and I could go on and on 36 more times... And you'd be like, let's stop, let's get to the good part. Like, this is the kind of scripture that you wanna skip over to get to the real thing. Nobody opens up and reads the Christmas story starting with Matthew 1, verse 1 on on Christmas morning. If you did, your kids would be like, please, for everything good and holy. But we've gotta look at this because here's here's the deal, everybody. Nothing is wasted in scripture. Nothing is wasted. Even the lineage of Jesus isn't wasted. What is, what is Matthew trying to say here by showing all of this ancestry.com? He's trying to say Jesus is not just another fairy tale pointing towards hope. He's a historical event, a historical figure. The, the truth backs it up. You can see it. You can read about it. You can find the family. He's legit. Listen, we love our fairy tales. We, we watch things like Beauty and the Beast, where by his own making, the beast is imprisoned by his own decisions and his own bitterness and his own pride. And he's just waiting for love that would unlock it for him. Aurora is sleeping beauty and she is waiting for the prince to come. And the prince, the noble prince with love's true kiss is the only way that kind of love and that kind of touch is the only way she's going to escape her eternal sleep. In a place called Narnia, it's always winter. Winter because the white witch has frozen everything. And they're just waiting that someday the lion Aslan will come back and bring everything and come back and rule Narnia because he was a good ruler. And when he comes, it'll be summer again. Star Wars is a new hope and that there's this force that is available to guide you. And if you let hatred and anger and rage guide your life, it'll end in disaster. I mean, even, look, even, even cats... Even cats shows us what hell is going to be like. <laughs> just a bunch of talking cats. That's it. That's hell on earth. What am I trying to say? Look, 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 Jesus is not just another fairy tale pointing towards hope. The prince we're looking for, the breakout of prison, the setting of the captive that's free, the summer that, that, that erodes the winter, it's all points to Jesus. Jesus is the hope to which all those other stories point. Look and listen, the, the the Bible says that eternity is is placed in our hearts. There's a longing that you have that that you just you want to see true love and you want to see the supernatural and you want to experience something bigger than yourself. It's locked up inside of you. And I'm telling you, that's not just you being addicted to Lord of the Rings. That is the the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords being alive and well and interested in showing you he is the answer that you're looking for. He's the answer to all issues. But we are addicted to wanting to come up with our own answers to our problems. The genealogy shows us he's pointing us to the real hope. Here's another one, number two. The genealogy of Jesus signals an ultimate rest. Now, now, now you're gonna have to follow me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna break two rules of public speaking today. Don't do math in public, okay? And don't nerd your people to death. But I'm gonna nerd you to death and I'm gonna do some math in public, I'm sorry. But let me show you something that's so interesting that if you don't understand Jewish culture, you wouldn't see this in the genealogy of Jesus. You would just skip right over it and you would go to the good stuff, okay? But in Matthew chapter one, verse 17, here's here's how Matthew finishes the genealogy. He says, so there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David. There were 14 generations from David to the exile to Babylon. And there were 14 generations from the exile of Babylon to the Messiah. 14, 14, and 14. Now, if you do the math in your head without me putting the answer there, you come up with what? 41, exactly. No, 42. I I, have 42. You come up with 42. 42 generations. Now, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Just... What does it mean? Well, the number seven was very important in Jewish culture. We see seven all throughout the Bible. Six days, God creates the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day, he does what? He rests. Uh, we, we see that there are uh, seven um, uh, illustrations that Jesus gives of himself in the book of John, the bread, the life, the gate, and so on. There are seven Stanzas in the Lord's Prayer, there are seven statements on the cross. There, there's just things like, you know, there, there are seven uh, levels of refining gold. How many days was Jonah in the whale? Three, three. <laughs> I tricked you, tricked you. Just three, not seven. Okay, moving on. So here's what, if you didn't understand Jewish culture, here's what you would, you, you, you can see now. Seven plus seven is what? Good. Seven plus seven is what? Seven plus seven is what? Okay, so how many sevens do we have? One, two, three, four, five, six. So so here's what we have. We have six sevens. Now, in scripture, in Ezekiel and Leviticus and in the book of Daniel, it talks about these patterns that are prophetic, like um, that are showing us a picture of the future, and what we see is there have been a fulfillment of six sevens. And here's why this is so important. is because Jesus begins the seventh seven. Now that's not because it's just a set lucky number seven. He begins the seventh seven. And here's why it's interesting. Here's why it's important for you. Every seventh day, the Jewish culture was to rest. Every seventh year... Uh, the Jewish culture was to not farm for that year. They were to let the soil lay dormant and give that year back to God, that entire year. When you're an agrarian society and all your income comes from farming corn and wheat and, and soybeans, you, you, you have you gotta rely on yourself. And he says, no, 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 you rest. Instead of you earning the income, let me be your provision. And he's showing them that. Then, in the seventh, uh, in the final year of the of 49, every 49 years, at the end of a 7 seven, every 49 years, there was a law in Jewish law that at the end of 49 years, at that 49th year, they called it the year of Jubilee. And anybody that was a slave was to be set free. If there was any person that owed a debt, it was paid. There was something powerful about That seventh, seventh. So Jesus comes on the scene and here's what he is. He's the alpha and the omega. He's the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end. He is the culmination of rest. The entire nation of Israel was trying to work, 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 work to get in right with God. And what God is showing them and showing you all the work in the world won't make you reach heaven, but you can rest and that heaven came down to you. Furthermore, he comes down and he not only gives us rest, but he cancels the debt and he sets the captives free. Nothing is wasted in scripture. So what are we seeing in the gospel of Matthew in the genealogy of Jesus? The gospel story isn't just good advice. The gospel story isn't just good advice. I can give you some good advice today. I can give you some good principles. I can give you some leadership stuff. I can give you some ways to, to, to develop culture in your organization. I can give you some things to be a better husband, a better wife. But God doesn't come and send his son just to give you good advice. Because good advice is stuff that you got to do. The gospel isn't good advice. The gospel is good news. See, the difference between advice and news. Advice is what you got to do. News is what's already been done. And so Jesus comes, and it's tidings of great joy. It's good news that he's already He's already, he's the prince. It's true love's kiss. It is the revealing of spring and summer. He's the answer, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. You still with me? Number three, thank you all four of you. The genealogy of Jesus churns the world's value system upside down. The value system of our culture is you better get in first. If you ain't, in in the words of the prophet Ricky Bobby, if you ain't first, you'll last. Or you better go get it. Where we're all about, even America, the American dream is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And he turns the value system upside down with this genealogy. Because here's the deal about a genealogy. The purpose of a genealogy, this whole ancestry thing, was to present a proper pedigree. When Queen Elizabeth died, there was all these uh, news pundits that were talking about the heir to the throne, Prince Charles, who's now King Charles, and and all. But they were also talking about like um, backup plans, the same way that, that you would have a a a, a survivor um, uh, that, that is set aside um, with with uh, the president, and if the president were to die, then the the, the vice president, and who who's after the vice president, what about him, what about them? Like like after all of that, what, what happens? Well, we see proper pedigree in the whole idea of royalty where if Charles were to die, who would take the place? And then what about them? And then what, who, who would it go down to from them? And, and all of these different things, it shows proper pedigree. The right. I mean, even dog shows talk about, oh, here's Rufus. His father was such and such of this cocker spaniel. I mean, we, we care about the pedigree. But, but Jesus turns this upside down. And in the story of Jesus in his family tree, Jesus' genealogy includes those who are considered outsiders. I mean, the genealogy is the resume of the day. You don't put in your resume just like, I will really start with all the things I did wrong. <laughs> I do like to ask that question when we're interviewing. Tell me about your failure resume. What, what, what are the things that you like wish you would have done differently the second time around? You know, what, what, what's, what's your failure resume? But like, there's outsiders involved in Jesus' family tree. Two in particular, in a family tree of men that begat these men and men that begat these men in a culture that did not value women, there are five women mentioned in Jesus' family tree. A culture, the Jewish culture, that did not, did not even allow a woman to speak as a credible witness in a court of law not only is Jesus showing that, that he values all gender, but he, he, he values male and female. But on top of that, he values the voice of the female. He values what a, a woman brings. Even the first evangelist of Jesus' resurrection, by the way, is a woman from the garden who communicates the truth to disciples of men who didn't even believe it and had to run and figure it out for themselves And women have been doing that ever since, you know. (laughs) But not only are there five women, but in some of these women and in some of these men, they're Canaanites and Moabites. The scripture is clear. In the Old Testament, the law said that if you were outside the Jewish faith, you wouldn't even be allowed into the temple of God. And yet, in the family tree of Jesus, (laughs) anybody can come. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. Hey, here's what it shows us that, that, that not only is the genealogy uh, for those that were considered outsiders, but the genealogy includes those with incredible moral failures, huge mistakes, terrible, sinful things that we would say, oh, I can't believe they did that. There's several. Let me just give you three. The first, Judah, the father of Perez and Zahra, whose mother was Tamar. But if you don't know the story, you don't know that Tamar is actually Judah's daughter-in-law. Daughter-in-law. In In between services, Graham was saying to me, what what does that mean? And and I'll I'll replay it to you again and say, Tamar dressed up as a prostitute because she felt like she was not uh, uh, honored in the house, and it was true. She dressed up as a prostitute. She tricked Judah to sleep with her. She gets pregnant with twins, Perez and Zara. That's how you start the family line of Jesus. That's crazy. And Graham's like, "What? Like, yeah, I know. It's nuts. But like, the genealogy is full of stuff with incredible moral failures." Here's another one, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Rahab was in the city of Jericho. She was a Moabite, a pagan believer. And she, she helped, she was actually a prostitute or she owned the brothel and she helped spies of Israel escape from Jericho. And this prostitute or madam is mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. Here's another one. David, the father of Solomon. Solomon, wisest man who ever lived. David, man after God's own heart. Well, Solomon's mom was one of the seven wives of David, but Solomon's mom, whose mother was Bathsheba, but the scripture doesn't say mother of Bathsheba. As a matter of fact, Matthew doesn't put it that way. In the genealogy, here's how Matthew writes it. He says, David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's, Wife. He says it there to make sure that it's not gonna be scraped underneath the rug, that there is a legitimate issue here, that David, a man after God's own heart, had a moral failure. He took another man's wife, slept with her instead of being on the battlefield, and in order to cover up the unwanted pregnancy, he has her husband killed in battle. And, and Matthew says, we're gonna remember this because God is gonna reach you no matter what your past, no matter what your decisions, and even David, if David can still be known as a man after God's own heart and still in the genealogy of Jesus we can have the mother uh, uh, whose whose husband was Uriah then you no matter what you've done or of your flaws and over your failures and over your regrets I'm telling you there's room at the family table for you as well there's room for you what does it say it says that if, you, if you've messed up, you can be in. Just receive his grace. You know what else it says? It don't matter if you're the king of the nation. You need grace too. So you can't earn it. You just have to receive it. Here's another thought. Jesus' genealogy includes those who felt overlooked and unlovable. You know, there are... Uh, Fun, exciting times at Christmas and Thanksgiving, but it's also one of the loneliest seasons of the year. It's also a time where people deal with a lot of mental health challenges. It's a deal where there's a lot of depression, a lot of clouds, a lot of darkness. I don't know if it is the um, the rising of all of like the joy stuff on the outward that makes people feel less um, Or if it's just, uh, it reminds them of what they didn't have or what they wish they would have done. But uh, there's an overlooking and an unloving that can really become heightened at Christmas time. And yet in the genealogy, we see this on full display. I mean, not on the front, but if you just drill down a little bit deeper into this story of God, you see it. Let me give you that example. As we begin to land the plane today, Abraham gave, uh, had a son named Isaac. Isaac got married and he had two sons. They were twins, Esau and Jacob. Esau was the older, Jacob was the younger. When Esau came out, his mom named him Esau. You know what Esau means? Red and hairy. That's what Esau means, red and hairy, wouldn't you? You know, uh, that's, that's not very nice of Mom. Just red and hairy. What's your name, red and hairy? You know, uh, Jacob comes out a few minutes later, and he was actually hanging on to the heel. The Bible says of his older brother Esau. A few minutes later, Jacob is born, and she names him Jacob, which means heel grabber, which doesn't sound that bad, you know. Hey, I'm red and hairy. Hey, I'm heel grabber. But heel grabber means liar. Like here, I've got my son, Brett, and John, and Seth, and liar. (laughs) Like, boy, you love to be known like that. That's like saying, hey, here's, here's my sons. Here's Joey, here's Johnny, here's Judas, okay? Like, you know, careful what you name your kids. But like Jacob, he's a heel grabber, he's a liar, and sure enough, that's how he gets a, God is gonna bless him anyway, but he thinks that if he takes it into his own hands, he'll get the blessing so he tricks his brother out of the birthright and then he tricks his own father out of giving the blessing of the, like the family line to his oldest brother Esau and he tricks his dad. Why did he do that? Because he felt unloved and overlooked. Because Esau and Isaac were like this. I mean, Isaac wore boots, Esau wore boots. Isaac liked to hunt at Thanksgiving. Esau liked to hunt at Thanksgiving. Jacob, he watched HETV. He, he liked Top Chef. And while Esau's hunting all day, Jacob is putting down a new, you know, mushroom reduction sauce. <laughs> and that's how he tricks Esau. Esau comes home being so stinking hungry from a long day of hunting. And Jake, he goes, man, that smells so good. What is that? He's like, oh, it's a little something, something I put together. He says, I'll give you anything for a a bowl of the soup. Hey, careful what your appetite makes you be willing to give up. Careful what your financial appetite at Christmas might cause you to give up. Careful what your sexual appetite and your hormones might cause you to give up. Careful, careful. Esau traded in a birthright for a temporary fix. And I wonder if many of us have done or are doing the same. Nevertheless, Jacob does get the blessing. And Jacob gets a little older and it's time to him to marry and he meets love of his life. Rachel! Rachel's dad is Laban, and Laban uh, is is Jacob's um, uh, uh, boss, and Jacob is, is earning a good living for Laban, and he's figuring out how to be an incredible rancher, and, and he wants to marry Rachel. Rachel isn't the oldest of Laban's, but that's who he loves. You can't help. I mean, you just love who you love, right? And so... Jacob asks to marry Rachel, Laban says, fine. They have the whole ceremony, the wedding party, the, the reception, the dance floor. They're dipping, you're dipping, they're dipping. And sure enough, at the last, at the 11th hour, when Jacob goes to consummate the marriage, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, say no more, say no more, there in the tent, I don't know if Jacob had had one too many, or if he was just tired or what but at the last minute Laban switches Rachel for his oldest daughter Leah now Leah in the bible Rachel is considered lovely to look at and Leah ain't <laughs> like there's a like Jacob just didn't just have like I love you but I'm not in love with you kind of thing with Leah He wasn't attracted to Leah, but sure enough, Laban did a whole switcheroo. Jacob wakes up the next morning having fulfilled his responsibilities on the honeymoon night, and he opens up the zipper of the tent, and the sun comes in, and he leans over to say, hey, I'm going to go grab a Starbucks. What are (laughs) you? And Leah's laying there. Hey, hot stuff. Jacob is ticked off at his father-in-law. He says, how could you do this? Isn't it interesting how we can get so mad with people that do things to us that we are just as guilty of doing? He tricked his own dad into giving him a birthright. And now his father-in-law tricks him and he's ticked off about it. It's the whole you know, a uh, little splinter in, in, in their eye when you have a sequoia Christmas tree hanging out of yours. And so sure enough, Jacob loves Rachel, but he's forced to marry Leah. And Laban says, hey, if, I'll give you Rachel too if you work for me for another seven years instead of doing your own thing. So he agrees. And now he has two wives right off the bat. I can barely make one wife happy. Two, mic drop in a bad way. Not only that, but Rachel and Leah, they have maidservants, and when they stop producing children, they give their maidservants to Jacob, and so now this house of Jacob that's got two wives, he also has two mistresses named Bilhah and Zilpah, and through those four women, Jacob has 12 sons. Are you following me so far? Now, these 12 sons, you will remember several of their names, but they are two that are very, very popular, and they are the last two sons right here. These last two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. Joseph, who would go to Egypt and be the viceroy over uh, with Pharaoh, and Benjamin, who was the final son and so loved by Jacob, Joseph was loved too. He got the coat of many colors, and the rest of his, all the rest of these sons hated Joseph. Well, it's because his love of his life was never able to give him kids. The one he truly loved was never able to give him kids for years and years and years and years and years and years and years years years, until finally her womb opened up and she was able to have Joseph and Benjamin. That's part of why Jacob loves these two so much is because of the love of his life, Rachel. Now we have these others, these four right in the middle are birthed not by Rachel or Leah, but Bilhah and Zilpah, give them four others. Now these 12 sons would become the 12 tribes of Israel because Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And those are the 12 tribes. But now what I really wanna focus on though are these six. Six of the 12 birthed by the forgotten, unwanted and unloved woman forced upon a man that she just wished would see her like he sees her sister. How do we know this? Because even though Rachel cannot have children, Leah begins to give birth, and the first child that she has, she names him Reuben. And Reuben in that language means, now my husband will see me. Now, maybe if I give my husband a son, he'll finally see me because I don't feel very seen right now. But it doesn't happen. She gets pregnant a second time and she names the second son Simeon. And in the original language, the son Simeon, his name means, oh, now he may not have seen me, but maybe my husband will hear me. He'll hear me. And he doesn't. And yet, she gives birth to a third son named Levi. And the Levites were responsible for handling all of the issues inside the temple. Like, big job. That was from Leah, the unloved and the forgotten woman in this story. And Levi's name means, oh, now finally my husband will be attached to me. He doesn't see me. He doesn't hear me. Maybe this will attach us if we just keep, if we just do this. We just, In how many marriages, if we just go on that vacation, maybe we can find some closure. Maybe, maybe we can get attached again. And I want to tell you, all the things of this earth aren't going to fix what God has designed. If God can be the center That's where everything flows from it. But if kids are the center of a marriage, even if one another are the center of a marriage, it'll never quite work out. Because every attempt at completing yourself and them, it's a fairy tale. But the true story is Jesus is the one that brings completion. Finally, she has her fourth son, and her fourth son, she names Judah and you will have heard the name Judah in the lineage. It's not the first, second, or third son. This is crazy. In a culture that it was the firstborn that had all the rights, it's the fourth son that is gonna be in the line of Jesus in the tribe of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah will come. But Leah has changed somehow. And she names Judah, and the name Judah simply means, God be praised. She shifted from finding that love in a husband that didn't want her to surrendering to an almighty God that knows her story and knows yours too. Finally, Jesus' genealogy shows us We don't like it, but it's true. God may take his time. God cannot be judged by your calendar. He will take his time. But he always keeps his word. And they were looking, and they were looking. Even Genesis says, he'll bite your heel, but he will crush the serpent's head. It's a image, a moment, but it's going to be thousands of years before not the birth, but the coming of good news. He may take his time and you might be on that timeline right now wishing God would finally show up, wishing God would give you the answer, wishing God would fix that thing, wishing God would take that away, wishing God would show you the direction, wishing, wishing and hoping and praying and, and, and thinking and strategizing and frustrating and hurt and depressed and all of those things in the, in the waiting room of life, in the waiting room. He may take his time, but he always keeps his word. This is part of what we celebrate at Christmas. Final question that maybe you would ask, that I know I've asked. Okay, maybe he does keep his word, but what if, what if I haven't kept my word to him? (laughs) Well, welcome to the family. Welcome to the family. Surrender your heart to Jesus. Let him not only be your savior, let him be your Lord. Let him be the king that comes and sets the kingdom right in your heart. It's a story that's real, that's true, that is still unfolding even now. And it's a story that doesn't start with once upon a time. But for all of us that bow a knee to Jesus, it will always end with they lived happily ever after. Would you pray with me? Close your eyes and bow your heads. Two prayers today. So if you would just, this isn't like a benediction to a church service and like a cute little ending. This is business with God. This is business with God where all of us are responsible to do some heart inventory. Search our heart, oh God. Find anything in it that's not of you. And in this moment, two prayers today. The first is for those of you that if, as you search your heart, you realize you've not invited Jesus to be the king of your heart, the king of your life. Um, But you're recognizing that you make a pretty terrible savior for yourself. (laughs) And maybe it's been something you've done, but you've drifted. You still have a seat at the table. And if you're here today and you need to, for the first time or a fresh time, invite Jesus to truly be your king, truly be the answer to your life. If you need that, I wanna invite you to pray today. And it's not my prayer, it's your prayer, but I'll guide you. And if you need that today with no hesitation, I'm just gonna say, you're saying, hey, I need to surrender to Jesus today to be my king. If that's you, Just put a hand up in the air and then you can put it right down. Just put it up and then put it down. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Anybody else? All across this auditorium, wanna make sure I give you an opportunity. Anybody here, anybody in Nacogdoches, Dieball Duncan, I need to to make Jesus the king of my life, okay? In your own words, you simply say, Jesus, thank you for not being a fairy tale, but being for real, for showing me how much you love me and that I can be a part of your family and I can't earn it I can't be good enough. I just have to receive your grace today. Thank you for not being mad at me, Jesus. But thank you for giving me this moment to make things right with you. I wanna follow you and I I don't even know what all steps I need to take, but I wanna start by saying, sit on the throne of my heart and please give me this next chance. And if you've prayed that prayer, I want you to know he does. He does give you that chance right now, in this moment, it's happening. Though your sin be like scarlet, it's washed white as snow when you invite the grace of Jesus in. Second prayer, maybe there's been an element where you have felt overlooked, unloved, you're struggling with your identity in Christ and you deal maybe with a little bit of shame or you deal with a little bit of not deserving the grace of God, but just once again, (laughs) you wanna receive his grace and mercy to just flow over and remind you that you're a son or daughter of the King. If that's you, would you just put a hand up? I know I have to raise my hand too on this. Yeah, lots of hands. He sees you and he loves you and he meets you right where you are. Jesus, thank you that we didn't have to have the proper pedigree. We didn't have to have all, the, all of our ducks in a row. We, we didn't have to have the right bloodline. We didn't have to do a certain thing and accomplish a certain way and keep clean for this long and never deal with that addiction. Lord, you meet us, addiction and all, struggle and all, divorce and all, failure and all, regrets and all, wounds and all, shame and all. And as far as the east is from the west, you cast that away and you choose not to remember that when you see us. All you see is someone saved by grace of your son, Jesus. May we see us the way we we are seen by you. And may we walk in that confidence and blessing. May we be part of your story. Thank you, Jesus. We ask it in the name of Jesus, the strong son of God. Everybody said amen.